Hi, this is Alex Gianni, and I'm here with Alex Sutherland, our chief scientist. So, Alex, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I am the chief scientist and director of research and evaluation at BIT. I've worked for about 20 years as a researcher in various guises in universities, policy research institutions, and now at BIT. And Alex, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so uh, I'm based here in Sydney, where I oversee our research and evaluation work um, for this lower half of the of the globe. Um, I've been with BIT for the last uh, eight years. Um, prior to that, I worked in, in universities looking at how we get evidence into policy. Great. So um, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, evidence-based government and being empiricists. Uh, so let's start by explaining what we mean by being evidence-based and why anyone should care. Uh, we should say that we're not claiming all the credit here, but we were definitely part of the puzzle. So it's about contribution, not attribution. What is policymaking like without empiricism? So I'll ask that question to you, Alex. Yeah, so I think that's a really important question to take quite seriously. Um, I remember when I had a lecture at university on evidence-based treatments uh, quite a while ago, um, I remember thinking rhetorically, uh, why would you use anything other than evidence in order to make any decisions? But I think it's actually really important that we answer that question genuinely, because if you don't take those concerns seriously, you end up drowning out some, some real concerns. So policymaking previously was governed by a theory or an ideology. Um, and you know what people wanted from that theory or that ideology was certainty. And this is really important because we elect uh, politicians because they offer certainty. You know, you're not going to really elect somebody if they go in there and they say, you know, we're not really sure what's going on. You want a leader who understands what's what's going on and has a clear answer. Um, but the problem is, is that the universe and the world isn't really that certain. Uh, so, you know, we've got a bit of a, an issue there. And another key issue is the fact that the evidence that's created is usually created in trials that are conceived by, you know, pointy-headed academic types uh, like the two of us. Um, no offence taken. <laughs> good. Um, um, but the thing is, is that if you end up designing evidence from the ivory tower, uh, then quite often it isn't that useful to people on the front line. So it's really important to actually go out, talk to people and understand um what their concerns are so you build evidence for them. And that's something that BIT has worked quite hard at, uh, is that we've tried to popularise the use of randomised control trials or RCTs and bring them to a much wider audience. In fact, we put out a publication a few years ago now called Test, Learn, Adapt, which was once described as the ladybird book of RCTs, um, so that we can popularise them and get more people to use them. However, it is true that quite a few people, notably the Nobel laureate Angus Deaton, um, would argue that randomised control trials won't help policymakers that much, and potentially they're even being overused. Uh, so Alex, where would you stand on the idea of um, RCTs being overused or, or even underused? Yeah, well, far be it from me to disagree with Angus Deaton uh, or a Nobel laureate about anything. Um, I think it's first worth reflecting what RCTs can do. Um, I view randomised trials as a precision tool, like a scalpel, 
So they're useful for answering precise questions. And that's one of the big benefits, in my opinion. They force specificity in outcomes. Um, that's often referred to as being narrow, but that kind of is the point. You know, that helps you get to a, a specific answer. And in terms of over or underuse, um, I think that the use is increasing, but they're still underused. If you look at the comparison between the Cochrane and Campbell uh, collaboration uh, repositories, so these are places where people uh, record and review the randomized trials um, in different fields. So Cochrane for medicine and Campbell is for pretty much everything else. Um, in the last century, so outside of health, the numbers are pretty low, but that is changing. So to take one example uh, in education, there are about 250 education randomized trials between 1980 and 2005 but more than 750 in the last 10 years. So, beyond RCTs, what do you think BIT's main contributions have been? I'll start by saying I think it's three things. The first is the use of administrative data. The second is working at scale. And the third is being able to test what we call micro-interventions. So, um, use of admin data. It used to be the case that admin data was seen as the wrong data. It had impurities in it that meant it wasn't useful. Um, it was a byproduct of government. However, using what's already out there means governments are able to maximize returns, but also just do more cool stuff. Um, so there are some really good examples of this. In the UK, for instance, there's the Administrative Data Research Initiative, which, although not, doesn't quite trip, trip off the tongue, um, is actually making government admin data um, kind of more available for external users, uh, particularly researchers to ask and answer new questions with. And the two good examples of this are the Ministry of Justice, UK Ministry of Justice Data First initiative, which is trying to stitch together data from all the different data sets that the justice sector holds, um, and the Justice Data Lab. So that's a way of allowing voluntary sector organisations who have been running, say, interventions with uh, probationers or other offenders to assess whether what they're doing is effective without um, having to spend lots and lots of money um, or any money, indeed, on evaluation. Hmm. Uh, when you were talking there about a byproduct of, of government, that did remind me a little bit of cheese. <laughs> yeah. um, so I think, uh, although you look, you've got a quizzical look there, um, I think one of the things of cheese is that, you know, it was made for, for many, many centuries. And there was this byproduct that came along with that process, uh, whey, um, and people used to throw it away for quite a long time um, because they didn't think it had that much use. But now, actually, people realise that you can sell that to people in the gym to bulk up. Um, so there was all this stuff that was being developed on the, you know, on the on the wayside, I guess, um, that actually does have some use, and um, you know, it's just happens as 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 government does its thing. So number two, uh, um, the other point I was going to make is working at scale more quickly. So working with admin data and governments in general means that um, working with messier data, but also being able to work at scale much more quickly and directly. So a good example of that is tax trials, um, like the one we did in Indonesia. So even if someone's got a really good idea and there's evidence that it's effective, say, in a lab or with a different population, one of the questions we'll ask ourselves up front is, can we scale it? Can it work at scale? Mm, so tell us more about that Indonesian trial. Yeah, it's great. I mean, I, I think it's possibly the large, it's definitely the largest randomized control trial that BIT's ever done. I think, uh, and I wait to be told I'm wrong, uh, that I think it's the largest ever randomized control trial ever done. Um, it's 11.2 million taxpayers. And we tested the impact of 
sending out different emails on the likelihood of filing a tax return two weeks or more before the annual filing deadline. And the most effective email, a planning prompt with the option to sign up for a reminder email, led to a 2.1 percentage point increase in early filing. And that doesn't sound like much, but at scale with 11.2 million people, that's actually going to mean a big real world impact. Hmm. And the other thing that you mentioned was uh, the use of micro interventions. So how do we put together the fact that we're working at huge scale with this idea of micro interventions and, and, and what are they? Yeah, so lots of thinking often goes into one shot kind of grand interventions. So something big and complicated. Um, but actually, one of the things that BITs help to do is embed the idea that solutions can be small, nimble and fast to test. And there was a recent paper uh, by Stefano Delavigna and Liz Linos that compared results from 120 randomized control trials by nudge units to 26 trials by academics. The average effect for the academic studies was an 8.7 percentage point difference, which is massive, between the, the treatment and control conditions, the two groups. But the average difference for the nudge units was 1.4 percentage points. The nudge unit trials were also much better powered, so they're larger sample sizes typically, and they also typically were working at a much larger scale. So 23 million people in total were involved in the nudge unit trials. So we're working with smaller margins and at the margins, but these micro gains can lead to macro changes as well. So, for example, changing consumer preferences through small changes like nudges could also lead to changes in markets. Hmm. So what would be a small um a small change in consumer preferences that has a change in a, in a market? Well, take the example of, say, um, packaging, um, plastic packaging for food. Um, if you can push more people to actually demand a different kind of packaging, uh, more environmentally friendly, then that could also lead to changes in supermarkets' behaviour. Right, and then, presumably, if supermarkets are changing, then all of their customers are then also changing. So they kind of, you have this feedback loop, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. So what about now in the future? Um, I'm going to ask this question to you, Alex. What would we like to see? And I'll, I'll throw it back at you to answer. So, yeah, I think the future uh, is going to be full of new and interesting challenges. I think you know, 2020 has thrown up plenty of different um, challenges. But I feel like this toolkit really does help us um, tackle uh, new questions that come up pretty well. The key thing for us will be asking the right questions. So hundreds of millions of dollars are being spent currently um, by organizations like Amazon uh, to run A-B tests, which are very, very similar to randomized control trials. In fact, they're, they're pretty much the same, but one was invented in, in California. Um, and they'll spend all of this money looking at whether or not a button should be cyan or light teal, um, which is you know an important question for them but doesn't really ask deep questions about policy change and how that affects people's lives. And I think that government could very much fall into the same trap of asking small questions that might make a tiny bit of difference without really thinking about the deep theoretical um, uh, issues that we need to look at. Uh, and I think one of the key things that behavioural insights practitioners need to do is they need to combine theory um, with experiments. So uh, there's a little story that I like to tell about how we did that here in uh, New South Wales at a hospital called St Vincent's. And St Vincent's were trying to um, reduce the number of people that weren't showing up to 
their hospital appointments. And um, what we tried to do when we went in there was to talk to staff and say, why is it that people aren't, aren't showing up? And when we asked that question, um, people came up with their own lay theories of uh, what was going on. So many people told us, you know, the reason why people aren't, aren't showing up is because uh, they might have uh, too many appointments and those appointments clash with one another. So because those appointments clash with one another, they actually don't show up to one of them. Right? Another explanation that was given was that people forget. And this is very sort of common behavior. Happens to me, happens to you, presumably, happens to everyone that you just forget something and therefore you don't show up to, to whatever appointment you might have. Um, and the third theory that, that some people mentioned was that uh, people don't value the costs of their appointment. So in the UK system, we know that you don't need to pay for your hospital appointments. Similarly, in Australia, you don't really need to pay for most of them or the government will take care of most of those costs. Um, so if you don't show up, you don't really feel that cost. So what we then did was we tried to pull out some testable hypotheses from those theories. So if it's the case that people have clashing appointments, then you can send them a text message reminder, but that won't really make any difference because there's this sort of hard barrier. If it's the case that people are forgetful, then any text message reminder should increase the likelihood that they show up but it doesn't necessarily matter what the content of that message is, right? It's just the reminder that matters. If it's the case that they don't value their appointment, then a text message reminder that says, you know, this appointment costs the hospital $250 if you don't show up, and that money can be used to help other patients, uh, then that message should be much more effective than um, the standard reminder. And the nice thing there is that those different theories that get tested and those hypotheses that get tested lead to further implications. So if it's the case that the text message doesn't work at all, then you should fix your scheduling system, right? It's pretty obvious. Um, if it's the case that people are forgetful, then keep sending reminders because we know that they work. If it's the case that people don't value their appointment, then actually there's a lot more that you can do. So you could create a mass uh, media campaign that tells people about the value of their appointments. So you can see how you can combine the theory, uh, and actually that can be theory driven from staff. It doesn't need to be this sort of highfalutin you know, theory of planned behavior um, to really get a very powerful um, tool. So Alex, uh, what do you think? What does the future hold? Uh, it's a good question, and thanks. That's a good example to talk through as well. Um, I just wanted to actually ask about what you meant by toolkit. Um, you mentioned in your in your kind of uh, response a minute ago about having a toolkit and I was wondering, did you mean randomized trials or a part of the toolkit or do you mean both uh, behavioral insights and randomized trials or just want to kind of elaborate a bit more on that? Well, so I think by toolkit, what I mean is, um, well, first of all, I think it's important that we don't just see RCTs as this one thing that we should be using uh, for every for every situation, I do think you know, if you blindly run randomized control trials and don't think about the questions that you're trying to answer, um, then you end up with that example that I gave of testing whether or not you have a cyan or a light teal button, right? Uh, so it's really yeah. important that we do combine um, that theoretical understanding of what's going on. And I mean, I mentioned 
you know, developing a theory by just talking to people. Uh, I think that is a key component of that toolkit. It's actually the ability to go out and understand what's going on by speaking to people who actually have a lot more understanding of the system than you do if you come in from the outside, and then combining that with that precision tool that you mentioned. So it's the the, the information gathering by talking to people um, that is one of your tools, and then the, the precision of the randomized control trial. Cool, thanks. Yeah, and, and to come back to the question you asked me, like, what do I think? Um, we'd like to see. Um, I think one of the things we need to do is is reduce some of the friction uh, in running a randomised trial in government. Um, that's not to say we kind of sidestep any processes or requirements um, you know that are required of anyone to get to that point. But certainly that process can be sped up, and that's something that COVID in particular has demonstrated. That um, certainly even in in industries or situations like said medical trials, all of that can be sped up if needed. Um, just to come back to kind of what randomized trials often look like, um, they're often designed as like a big one-off. So you you have an, an idea, you do a one-off test to see whether it's effective, and then you draw conclusions about whether it's effective off that one test. Um, what we'd like to see is a world where it's possible to kind of do more of that more rapidly um, and iteratively. So, so you're actually learning from your previous versions of what you've been doing. Um, and it, for example, as a really kind of simple example, um, imagining that government websites had in, inbuilt into them the idea of running so-called A-B tests, otherwise randomized trials online, um, in all mailing platforms or government websites that would allow government departments to easily test whether a particular version of a message is more effective. And what about you? What about what about you? What, what are the things you're thinking about? Um, anything you're worried about? So what am I worried about? Um, well, I guess I was... <clears throat> quite rude, I think, about the idea of doing A-B tests uh, without thinking really deeply about them. Uh, and I think it's not necessarily the mechanics of doing an A-B test that I'm worried about. It's not thinking about really what's happening behind the scenes. Um, one of the real benefits of a randomized control trial is its relative simplicity. Um, for people who are really into the mathematics of it, and don't worry, we're not going to go through that now, um, the maths is pretty simple. But at the same time, we've got a lot of people talking about you know the allure of, of of machine learning and how we can use black boxes to basically take any sort of thinking out of policy making and we just let the machines um, do their magic and they come up with the answer. And I think that that's something that's actually quite dangerous. Um, machine learning certainly has its place in the policy making toolkit. Uh, in fact, we've written we've written um, a report on it but uh, they're not there to replace randomized control trials. Um, in fact, the use of machine learning techniques is very much a complementary tool to um, the randomized control trial. And I think we should view them as such rather than uh, viewing them as alternatives to one another, which is quite often what you can see written. Yeah, I suppose, <clears throat> I guess the counterpoint to that is that there are examples where machine learning can be used for causal work. So Hal Varian from Google um, in California wrote a paper a few years ago on how machine learning could be used for causal work. So in particular, trying to find better comparisons or as it's termed, counterfactuals. And I think that's something that could complement, for example, um, work that's being done with trials. Uh, we were trying to understand whether the intervention has an impact on a particular group of individuals within your trial. Um, the other place I think actually there's a real benefit is where 
machine learning or artificial intelligence is used to augment human decision making. So there's a great example, some former colleagues of mine at Cambridge um, used AI to help inform decisions by police custody sergeants on whether someone should be granted bail or not. So humans are fabulously bad at uh, assessing risk unless it's really extreme. So low risk and high risk was straightforward. It was the middle group um, that they were using this to help augment. Um, and there seemed to be real benefits of doing that. But that was also tested. So it wasn't a case of just applying this. They actually applied this as, as an intervention and, can, and tested it in a trial. So I think there's places where we can combine these things and really get a lot more benefit from both uh, how we run systems, but also that we can, there's nothing to stop us from testing out whether these new augmentations are actually more effective. So taking all this together, how do we get to an evidence-based government? Uh, grit, graft and persuasion, I think. But most of all, we need to make sure that we are answering the questions that policymakers want answered, but also pushing them to ask good questions. Mm. So I think that's a, that's a great note to end it on. So we've covered why it's important for governments to be empirical. Uh, we've talked about micro-interventions and how they can be used for uh, as a precision tool. But then we've also talked about uh, why it's important to use those precision tools at scale. And finally, we've also talked about um, why we should be a little bit wary of machine learning techniques. But we've also talked about how they can really be an effective uh, part of the policymaking toolkit. And throughout that, we've also slipped in a little bit of discussion about cheese. So thank you very much uh, to you, Alex. And uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, if you want to know more, then you can download Test, Learn, Adapt on our website. If you want to learn more about how BI and data science and machine learning can be used together, then you can read our report on the very same website. Thanks for listening. Take care of yourselves and take care of others.